The legacy of the march in Selma is that while nothing can stop free people from exercising their most sacred power as a citizen, there are those who will do anything they can to take that power away. Ain't it the truth, brother? Ready to fight? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. It still ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California, and Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, uh, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe for you every day, every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Burden, Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. I hope you agree. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the Bradcast. And a quick thanks to those of you who supported uh, KPFK and this program during our recent winter fun drive, which is mercifully now over. But hey, if you failed to jump in, I would still thank those of you who are able to to stop by kpfk.org. And hit our donate button to become a member of our sustainers circle uh, so that we can keep producing our show uh, out of right here out of the great KPFK in Los Angeles and share it five days a week to Pacifica and other stations uh, and partners around the country and indeed around the globe. So uh, uh, please, if you stop by KPFK.org, and I hope you will. Please tell them that Brad Friedman and the Bradcast sent you so that, uh, hey, station management might appreciate us around here for a change. Or maybe you should mention Desi Doyen, because that's <laughs> they already appreciate now that I think about it. Regardless, please do go to kpfk.org and help support this amazing station. Hi, Des. Hi. Uh, in the meantime, of course, there is, uh, well, of course, there's just one thing right now that Americans are discussing today, and that is Oprah Winfrey's blockbuster two-hour-long interview on Sunday night with Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan Markle, in uh, in exile from the royal family now living in Southern California, we think in Santa Barbara. So we are going to spend 
all 58 minutes of today's broadcast discussing every single aspect and nuance of that landmark interview that has outraged Americans from coast to coast and has apparently shook the royal monarchy in Great Britain to its core. And why are you looking at me that way, Des? You... You, we're not going to do that. No, we're no. not? No. We're you not. sure? Yes. That's what they want to talk about, you know. Well, that's what everybody wants yes, to talk that's about. That's what everybody is yeah. talking about. And I frankly think that that's uh, silly, but, you know. That's what they want to cover. That's because you're so out of touch with the people, unlike me. Uh, but but Desi is right. Of course, we are not going to do that. We're not going to do that at all. We're not going to talk about that in the, in the slightest. I don't think we will let others pick up that ball and discuss uh, things that actually matter to folks here in the U.S. And yes, around the world. But I will say this. I, I think one of the main reasons that so many watched that interview and were taken by that, uh, really, it was a revealing interview about the shabby treatment of uh, Royal Prince Harry and the outrageously racist behavior of his family and England's royal monarchy uh, is because finally, finally, we get to enjoy a problem out there, an outrage that we here in the U.S. did not actually directly create ourselves for a welcome change. So everybody is loving that. We get to enjoy someone else's problem. And so, you know what? I can't really say I blame people. I, you know, I would usually criticize anybody even, you know, giving a damn about what the royals are up to. But after a year of unfettered COVID spread and lockdowns in this country, thanks to our idiot previous president and four or five years of his appalling, anxious, making nightmares every day for the American people and for the world. It's kind of nice to revel in someone else's misery uh, for a change, something uh, uh, someone else's problems that we did not actually cause, at least not directly. So, um, you know, and hey, we're even sort of the heroes of that story, by the way. We have welcomed Prince Harry and Meghan Markle to the U.S., how often are we the heroes these days? Uh, and, you know, and and damn the brittle old archaic British monarchy that we fought a revolution to leave. And, hey, because, you know, our system is much better than theirs because we have a straight up, bottom up, free democracy here to be proud of in the great old U.S. of A. Right. Why are you looking at me like that again, Desi? Uh, I have a feeling there's a little more to that yeah. story. Yeah, maybe there is. Yeah. So. Our democracy, as it turns out, is not so great. We will be speaking momentarily to someone who may have a word or two to say about all of this. Sarah Rapucci of the nonpartisan Freedom House joins us to discuss the findings from her latest uh, from from her group's latest uh, annual report on freedom and democracy around the world uh, in this year's report titled Democracy Under Siege. Just in case you're wondering how things are looking, not good and uh, not looking great either around the world or specifically here in the U.S. We'll get to that in a moment. First, uh, some news of note from over the weekend since we last spoke on uh, on Friday. Uh, by now, you have probably heard that the U.S. Senate on in a uh, 50 to 49 vote passed Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion American rescue plan over the weekend without any Republican support whatsoever. Despite the measure's massive popularity among Democratic, Independent and, yes, Republican voters, 60 percent of whom support this measure. And yet uh, the Republican lawmakers do not, apparently, 
Uh, the the uh, the bill received zero votes in the U.S. Senate, just as it had in the U.S. House. You also probably know that by now that the $15 an hour minimum wage mandate was disallowed in the bill by the Senate parliamentarian and that Democrats were unsuccessful in their attempt to override her with eight conservative Democrats voting against doing so. But by and large, the huge relief and stimulus measure passed pretty much as it was initially proposed by President Biden, with just a few small tweaks really around the margins, in truth, uh, for what is now the most progressive such relief bill ever, ever passed by both houses of Congress. Among the major points in this critical bill that, frankly, Democrats should be quite proud of, at least in my opinion, uh, $1,400 stimulus checks capped at individuals making less than $80,000 per year. The House version had had, uh, not, had had not entirely faded out those relief checks until the $100,000 mark. Um, but still, if you make up to $75,000, you're about to get a $1,400 stimulus check. There's a $300 per week unemployment insurance extension through September. The House had hoped that that would be $400 weekly benefits, but only through August. So this decrease uh, to the amount by a bit actually lengthens the time for eligibility and allows for more of that money to be tax exempt to those who receive it. There will be payments up to $3,600 per child. This and other expanded measures in the American Rescue Plan will benefit more than 93 percent of American children. $350 billion for states and local governments who have been slammed by lost revenue during this so far nearly year-long crisis. $86 billion in the bill is aimed at shoring up failing pensions around the country. $34 billion will expand Obamacare subsidies to those who had previously made too much money to qualify for premium assistance, but did not make enough money to properly afford those uh, those premiums. This will now expand that. So you may wish to check out healthcare.gov, uh, which has been opened again by the Biden administration to accept new signups beyond the normal open uh, signup period. Uh, due to the crisis. So it is open now. Go check it out. Once uh, healthcare.gov, once this bill is signed into law, likely this week, uh, you may be able to find out that you are newly eligible for new Affordable Care Act assistance in paying your health insurance premiums. Also, the bill subsidizes 100 percent of COBRA insurance coverage for jobless Americans, that is actually up from the 85 percent coverage that was included in the House version. So in some ways, the bill actually improved in the more conservative U.S. Senate, believe it or not. And yes, it also includes another 14 billion dollars for vaccine distribution. That's just some of the uh, crucial measures in this more than 600 page uh, legislation, which now heads back to the House one more time for final passage uh, it also includes $130 billion for schools to get those reopened safely, by the way. Uh, a, a note by The New York Times um, says the, the bill's overwhelming focus is on lower income Americans. Well, isn't that a nice change of pace? 
As The Times' Jim Tankersley writes, uh, for Biden, the plan is more than just a stimulus proposal. It's a declaration of his economic policy, one that captures the principal Democrats and liberal. Uh, I'm sorry, one that captures the principle Democrats and liberal economists have espoused over the past decade, specifically that the best way to stoke faster economic growth is from the bottom up. What a concept. Government actually helping the people who actually need help the most. What is going on here, Desi Doyen? I know. It's a crazy idea that we should actually get something for the taxes that we pay. Tankersley uh, observed that uh, Biden's approach in his first major economic legislation is in stark contrast to President Donald J. Trump's whose initial effort in Congress was a tax cut package in 2017 that largely benefited corporations and wealthier Americans. As NBC's Sahil Kapoor correctly reports, the legislation would be a victory for Biden, who campaigned for president primarily on bringing COVID-19 under control and reviving a shattered economy. The package also includes many progressive priorities. Uh, Experts, for example, say the new policies will sharply cut child poverty. There's another good idea. West Virginia's conservative Democrat and the most powerful member in the U.S. Senate today, arguably the most powerful in Washington, D.C., unfortunately, Joe Manchin, uh, said after the passage of the bill in the upper chamber, quote, today the Senate passed the COVID-19 relief package that will help kill the COVID-19 pandemic and set us on the right track to economic recovering. Recovery. He added, I am proud to vote for this relief package and I look forward to seeing the president sign this bill into law. President Biden, for his part, on Saturday celebrated the Senate's passage of the package, noting, quote, it wasn't always pretty, but it was so desperately needed, urgently needed, adding this nation has suffered too much for too long and everything in this package is designed to relieve the suffering and to meet the most urgent needs of the nation and put us in a better position to prevail. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer also spiked the football, as he should, noting, quote, everyone knows, especially with just 50 votes, we all have to pull together. He added, I have a leadership team that meets on Monday nights, and it has lifted Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin and Mark Warner and people in between. And that's because we all have to teach each other, realize we have to talk to each other, realize we need each other. And that is the secret to the success here. Every person realizing that we needed every other person to have this victory. I will note, uh, as you hear Republicans now pretending to be terribly upset about this bill and its $1.9 trillion price tag, that is the same price tag, arguably even a bit lower than the price for the Trump Republican tax cuts to largely wealth, uh, the wealthy and, and corporations that was adopted back in 2017 by every single Republican. The very same ones who are complaining today about the same amount of money going to Americans who actually need, desperately need that help so that we can get the country open so that, yes, the economy can improve so that, yes, those corporations you Republicans care about can actually start making some money again. 
and not one single Republican in either chamber of Congress voted for this package. I hope you will remember that. I hope and I hope that Democrats don't screw things up between now and 2022 uh, to make you forget it. But I hope that Democrats will remind the American people of all of this. And yes, sing the praises of what they and they alone are giving to a huge number of American voters of all parties. Yes, they should brag about this as much or, or even more, if that's even possible, than, than Trump and the Republicans did uh, with his budget-busting tax cuts and so much else that they helped the rich uh, with and, and slammed the so-called uh, forgotten Americans that Trump pretended to care about when he ran for office. So part of it is getting this thing passed. The other thing if Democrats uh, figure out th they figured out how to get it passed. Now they got to figure out how to let Americans know what they did. You know, Donald Trump was an idiot uh, and he was appalling in uh, more manners and ways than we could possibly fit into this hour program. But when he fought to put his signature on those checks that were being sent out to people, um, that was not a ridiculous idea. He was telling people that it was him who gave them the money. Now, in that case, it was actually a bipartisan coalition of Republicans and Democrats that did it. So he was taking credit that he did not deserve. But here, no Republicans have supported this. So, yeah, if Joe Biden wanted to put his name on that check, he would have every right to do so and probably should do so. Let your voters know what you are doing for them. Don't just do good things for them. Let them know who done it. And uh, one more for now before we get to our guest today. Uh, one more piece of uh, bad news for our disgraced former president from his stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court regarding the 2020 election, uh, for which all available evidence still demonstrates that he lost decisively to Joe Biden last year, no matter how much he continues to lie to his duped supporters out there. To the contrary, the Supreme Court on Monday disposed of the last of former President Donald Trump's challenges to state election procedures on Monday, rejecting his appeal of lower court rulings that upheld the bipartisan Wisconsin Election Commission's handling of mail-in ballots. The court announced the rejection of Trump's last desperate case without comment in a one-line order with zero noted dissents, even from a court on which he packed three of his own radical right appointees. Trump and his allies had a uh, uniformly unsuccessful record before the uh, stolen Supreme Court in their effort to try and overturn the presidential election results in states that were won by Joe Biden. In December, you'll recall, the justices refused to take up a lawsuit filed by Texas against the battleground states of Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, which Trump had called the big one at the time. That was the big case that was going to change everything. Of course, it was roundly rejected by the U.S. Supreme Court, which said that Texas demonstrated zero legal interest in how other states conduct their own elections. The Supreme Court last month also rejected several other challenges by Trump and his supporters Two Trump challenges uh, to vote uh, to vote counting procedures in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, for example, were among the cases that were rejected by the high court.
And while the vote counting was still underway in November, the court declined to stop Pennsylvania from counting ballots received after Election Day. In other words, he lost everything. Donald Trump is a loser, at least at the Supreme Court, at least when it comes to the election. He lost every single time at his own stolen U.S. Supreme Court in regard to the false claims that he was somehow cheated last year. Every single time by a far right court on which Republican appointees hold a six to three majority and three of the Republicans were actually appointed by Trump himself. Uh, Monday's action, of course, comes as little surprise. Had the uh, court intended to take any of these Trump challenges, they certainly would have done so before Congress formally counted the uh, Electoral College vote on January 6th, a process that was delayed for a whole bunch of hours by a deadly Trump-incited MAGA mob attack on the U.S. Capitol itself. So, Yes, it has been a rough year or two or three or four for democracy and the fight to save it from attacks uh, from what used to be known as the far right, but now is just known as the Republican Party is continuing. We're seeing this now in state after state. As a matter of fact, I think the Georgia Senate today has uh, voted to end no excuse absentee voting in that state. That, even as America, once a beacon of democracy for much of the world, has uh, lost much of that status in recent years, as we will discuss with my guest coming up right after this break. I hope you will stick around for this important conversation. But hey, at least we're not a monarchy yet. We just act like it sometimes. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to the world-famous Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Sunday marked the 56th anniversary of Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama, when state troopers beat and tear-gassed hundreds of peaceful protesters uh, as they uh, crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge in a march for voter registration rights. The protesters were seeking justice and to ensure their right to vote would not be denied. 
At the head of the march was uh, former Congressman John Lewis and Reverend Hosea Williams. As the troopers advanced with clubs raised, the group knelt in prayer. And then the images of protesters, bloody and bloodied and bruised, flashed across televisions across the nation and spurred Congress to pass and President Johnson to sign into law the 1965 Voting Rights Act. As the White House noted over the weekend with the signing of an executive order by Joe Biden to promote access to the voting booth, Congressman Lewis's fight to protect and expand the vote did not end that day in Selma, not by a long shot. He carried the mission to our nation's capital and remained a vigilant protector of our right to vote, knowing all too well the burdens born to guarantee it until the day he died. Marking the 56th anniversary of Selma, the first during which John Lewis was no longer alive to march across the bridge in commemoration, President Biden signed an executive order to promote voting access to allow all eligible Americans to participate in our democracy, to increase access to voter registration services and information about voting. The executive order is described by the White House as an initial step in this administration's efforts to protect the right to vote and ensure all eligible citizens can freely participate in the electoral process, noting that the president is committed to working with Congress to restore the Voting Rights Act, gutted by the U.S. Supreme Court, and to pass H.R. 1, the For the People Act, which includes bold reforms to make it more equitable and accessible for all Americans to exercise their fundamental right to vote. That landmark legislation, H.R. 1, has been passed in the House, but awaits passage in the U.S. Senate, where it remains uh, unclear now, barring reform to the filibuster rule, that it will be able to pass at all. In the meantime, President Biden's executive order will direct federal agencies to expand access to voter registration and election information. Uh, the uh, head of each federal agency will uh, submit to the uh, assistant to the president for domestic policy a strategic plan outlining ways that their agency can promote voter registration and participation within the next 200 days. These strategic plans could include actions such as leveraging federal agencies' existing websites and social media to provide information about how to register to vote, distributing voter registration and vote-by-mail ballot applications in the course of regular services, considering whether any identity documents issued by the agency can be used in a form that satisfies state voter ID laws, and the order also uh, directs the federal chief information officer of the U.S. to coordinate across federal agencies to improve or modernize federal websites and digital services that provide election and voting information to the American people, including ensuring that federal websites are accessible to individuals with disabilities and people with limited English proficiency. It directs uh, the executive order directs uh, federal agencies to assist states under the National Voter Registration Act to improve and modernize vote.gov to assist Americans in all states and territories and even residing overseas with how to register to vote and obtain ballots, uh, how to increase uh, federal employees' access to voting, how to analyze barriers to voting for people with disabilities, to increase voting access for active duty military and other overseas voters, 
to provide voting access and education to citizens in federal custody and establish a Native Americans uh, Native American Voting Rights Steering Group, among other much-needed actions to help improve access to the franchise. At the same time, however, state legislatures are attacking and restricting the right to vote, specifically Republicans in state legislatures. With more than 200 proposals moving forward from Republicans in more than 40 states seeking to limit the franchise by making it harder to both register and vote. The fight for democracy, it seems, never ends in this country or around the world, where, at least until recent years, other nations had long looked to the U.S. as a beacon of freedom, free expression, and, yes, democracy. But that position has uh, taken a bit of a hit in recent years, uh, according to a new report, and democracy and freedom around the world has arguably paid a price for it. Three quarters of the people on Earth now live in countries where freedom is declining. That's one of the grim takeaways in an annual report produced by Freedom House, the Washington-based pro-democracy think tank and watchdog. This year's survey, published last week, marked the 15th consecutive year of global democratic backsliding. A long democratic recession, in the words of the organization, that they say is deepening. Freedom House grades individual countries on 25 different indicators that evaluate the health of a given nation's democracy, or lack thereof. The cumulative score uh, then enables the organization, which has been in operation since 1941, to rank a given country as free, partly free, or not free. Of the 195 independent countries evaluated and another uh, 10 or 15 uh, different territories that are becoming countries, hopefully, of them, 73 saw aggregate scores decline over the past year and only 28 saw growth. That margin is the widest of any kind in the past decade and a half. Moreover, 54 countries are now labeled not free, or about 38% of the world's population. That's the highest share since 2005. Less than 20% of the world's population lives in countries now classified as free. Less than 20% of the entire world population. While citing uh, disturbing downgrades and losses of freedom in scores of countries from Kyrgyzstan to Belarus to Algeria to Hong Kong to India in this year's report titled Democracy Under Siege, Freedom House also took issue with the United States. Though still classified, at least for now, as free, the U.S. fell down the rankings by three points, finding a perch closer to countries such as Romania and Panama than Western European partners like France and Germany. Why? Well, let's get some answers to those questions and many others from the report's co-author. Sarah Rapucci is an expert in global democracy and human rights and vice president of research and analysis at Freedom House, dedicated to the expansion of freedom and democracy around the world, where she oversees the group's flagship publications, Freedom in the World, Freedom on the Net, and Nations in Transit. Sarah Rapucci, thank you for joining us today on the broadcast. Thanks so much. 
Good to have you here. I, I want to talk specifically about uh, U.S., what I'm going to call U.S. culpability and what your new report disturbingly describes as a 15-year decline in global democratic freedoms uh, and, and one that seems to be, frankly, now worsening more quickly each year, if that's the right way to put it. But it, if it's possible, can you quickly sort of summarize the international patterns that you are seeing elsewhere uh, and which parts of the world offer the most alarming changes in this year's report? Yeah, sure. So definitely what many of us have been witnessing here in the United States is part of this larger global trend. As you said, we've been tracking 15 years of decline globally, and the U.S. has been declining for the last 10 years. So this isn't totally new in the U.S., and it's definitely not new globally. Um, what we're seeing is declines across the board in very repressive settings and also in democracies and everything in between. Mm. There are regions like Eurasia, you know, Central Asia, Kyrgyzstan, Russia that are very bad and getting worse. Um, regions like the Middle East that are quite stagnant. But then in Africa, we see quite a dynamism. Some countries getting better and others mm. getting worse. And I think overall, you know, the, the main takeaway is that no... No country is safe from this. Mm -hmm. um, it's affecting all types and all regions, and it's something that we need to take really seriously. And uh, I think you, your report noted India was the most alarming case. Did that move from free to partly free uh, in, in this year's report? Yeah, exactly. So India is, of course, the world's largest democracy, so it's really significant that it dropped this year from mm. free to partly free. And, of course, India, you know, holds very successful elections. But what we found is that the prime minister, Prime Minister Modi, has been consolidating his rule and promoting a nationalistic view of Indian society instead of an inclusive view the way mm. the country was founded. And we're really quite concerned that this might not be the end of India's mm. downward trend. And, of course, uh, much of that has happened over the last four or five years um, in India. And while still classified as free in your report here in the U.S., you note that democracy was on the decline here. And, yes, even before the presidency of Donald Trump, uh, though your report found, quote, the final weeks of the Trump presidency featured unprecedented attacks on one of the world's most visible and influential democracies. After four years of condoning and indeed pardoning official malfeasance, ducking accountability for his own his own transgressions and encouraging racists and right wing extremists, the outgoing president openly strove to illegally overturn his loss at the polls, culminating in his incitement of an armed mob to disrupt Congress's certification of the results. Trump's actions went unchecked by most lawmakers from his own party with a stunning silence that undermined basic democratic tenets. Um, Sarah Rapucci, how much of this year's ranking for the U.S. itself, which uh, dropped, I mentioned, I think, three points, uh, how much of that was affected by that stunning turn of events in January? Uh, and, and what do you see as its effect uh, that you wrote about in some detail there, its effect on the rest of the world that once looked up at least somewhat to our uh, always otherwise decidedly imperfect democracy? Yeah, so, you know, the report 
that we just put out covers the calendar year. So actually the events of January 6th and afterwards were not included in there. Mm. Um, so it might be even more surprising <laughs> yes. to know that we still dropped by three points yeah. before that had happened. Um, you know, we were worried, as you said, about those those norms for holding leaders accountable that Mm -hmm. have been undermined through the dismissal of inspectors general and other things. Also very concerned about mass arrests and violence at protests, especially last summer Mm -hmm. um, in the the BLM movement. Mm -hmm. And we're also worried about lack of transparency around COVID-19 prevention and treatment. Um, But I, I actually think that what's most concerning in the U.S. was the systematic efforts of President Trump to overturn the will of the voters and make these baseless claims of fraud, even after the courts had given them fair hearing and rejected them. And that's, I think, not surprising, given how steadfast he was and how many supporters he had, that the credibility of our election is now being called into doubt by a significant portion of the U.S. public. Mm -hmm. And so even if President Trump is out of office, even if he never runs again, we have this this weakness in the credibility of our elections and people's buy-in to our democratic system. Mm. And of course, as you mentioned, that does have a knock-on effect in other countries. I mean, if this is happening here in the United States, where we have really strong institutions, where the courts fought back, the media spoke out openly, they weren't afraid to criticize. Um, Think about what happens in a country like uh, Cameroon, where people where the journalists have already been silenced, where the courts are compliant and the legislature just goes along with whatever mm-hmm. the president says, um, it can have a, a really strong domino effect in other countries. And that's what, yeah, that's, I think, what is most troubling to me. I, I suppose it's troubling enough what is going on with our own democracy here. I mentioned uh, before the uh, before the break that it looks like the Georgia Senate has now passed a bill to remove uh, 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 absentee voting, uh, excuse-free absentee voting that they themselves had put in place, but they didn't like this year's election results, so they're changing the laws. We're seeing that in more than uh, 40 different states now, more than 200 bills. Is that the sort of thing that would otherwise, uh, if you saw it in another country, uh, that would lead you to put out a a report, a warning about democracy under attack uh, in foreign nations? And is that what we're now looking at here uh, in 2021? Yeah, so definitely we believe as a organization that supports democracy, that there should be as many opportunities for safe and um, and for safe voting as possible, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, people should be able to vote. We, we should be aiming for 100% enfranchisement. Um, and so we look very carefully at the global scale, at countries that are restricting opportunities for voting or manipulating the system in a way that makes it so that people's vote count less or there's certain portions of the population that don't have the same opportunities as others. Um, And it is very worrying what is happening to our electoral system here and the possibility that we could 
be have a situation by the next election where um, where fewer people were able to vote than the time before. We should always be trying to expand those opportunities. And I, sh- I should underscore here that Freedom House, uh, as as the Washington Post notes, had in previous decades been seen by some on the left as a platform for Cold War moralizing, as a cog in a larger Washington apparatus aimed at justifying American hegemony. Uh, Fox Vox.com notes uh, that for some years in the 70s and 80s, your rankings were more subjective and less what they describe as less trustworthy uh, with a bias in favor of U.S. friendly states. But you have now changed your methodology uh, in in more recent decades to offer uh, what seems to be more confidence uh, to us in your findings. Can you quickly sort of explain how that works? This isn't uh, as it was maybe in the old days. I know you guys go back to 1941. This is not just some guy sitting somewhere giving his opinions about uh, the various rankings of these various countries. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we started this particular report in 1972. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was way before the Internet. It was before most people had access to international travel. It was very difficult to rate every country in the world um, in that kind of environment. There was very difficult communication with people in other countries. Um, So while our methodology in the framework has stayed the same over these years, uh, it's become much more nuanced and we've really heightened the level of scrutiny, the level of review, the number of people we have involved, Mm -hmm. the um, number of people who are in the country that they're reporting on. Of course, in a country like say Cuba, it's very difficult for somebody to report freely on democracy. Um, But we do try to maximize the number of people who are in their home countries and, um, and, have a panel of regional reviewers and global reviewers who put everybody through the ringer. Mm -hmm. We have been uh, keeping an eye in recent years on this program on uh, what I think is a similar uh, sort of annual report on electoral integrity worldwide from the Electoral Integrity Project at Harvard University and the University of uh, Sydney in Australia, uh, which has not ranked the U.S. very high on their own scale, uh, which they credit to our terrible campaign finance system, uh, gerrymandering of state and congressional districts, as well as uh, restrictions to access to the ballot box uh, in states around the country. Are those also the, the sort of specific points that are central to your rankings as well, at least in regard uh, to the U.S.? Yeah, we look at all of those. But for us, it's very important to always look at elections within the, the wider context, because democracy is about a lot more than elections. You can you can have a great election day, mm-hmm. but if the campaign is restricted, if people don't have access to independent information in the media, if they can't gather to protest, you don't have a democracy. So we look at all those different areas, mm-hmm. um, and we've seen downgrades in the U.S. on the areas that you've seen, but we also are deeply troubled by equal treatment of different segments of the population in this country and on the the continued systemic racism that we see, especially against people of color and black Americans in particular, Native Americans. Um, We've been worried in the past about excessive surveillance, about um, the outing of whistleblowers Mm -hmm. who are trying to hold the government to account, uh, corruption, so it's um, we've seen weakness in a range of areas, and certainly the U.S. has fallen well bef- 
below the countries that most people would think of as our peers, like mm. France and Germany and the UK. Yeah, I should note your uh, global freedom uh, score of, uh, well, it's 200 countries and uh, territories hoping, I guess, to become countries, uh, ties the U.S. for uh, with 83 points out of a total ranking of 100, tied with South Korea, Romania, Monaco, and Panama, but at a much lower rank than Greece, Latvia, Italy, Slovakia, Lithuania, France, the Czech Republic, Chile, Taiwan, Germany, Japan, Denmark, Australia, Canada, and even what we now know to be, uh, thanks to Oprah, I guess, the uh, racist parliamentary monarchy of the U.K. Um, so the U.S. fell, uh, I think it was, was three points. And for the record, the three countries tied as the freest are Finland, Norway, and Sweden, followed closely by New Zealand, Netherlands, Uruguay, and, uh, and Canada. Um, Sarah, we have been working toward a mighty battle over the future of the legislative filibuster in the U.S. Senate of late, as you know. Uh, how much of an effect on freedom and democracy does your report score against the U.S. when it comes to what really amounts, as I see it, uh, to minority rule when it comes to you know, gerrymandered districts at both the state legislative and congressional level and the minority rule that is sort of now inherent in the constitutional structure of the U.S. Senate itself, um, where a substantial majority of voters voted for Democrats. And yet the chamber is tied at 50 50, essentially. And then, of course, how the filibuster itself allows even further minority rule in that body. Are these elements um, are these seen as a plus in one sense because they protect the minority from the tyranny of the majority? Or does it simply allow the tyranny of the minority, if you will, to block progress for the majority of citizens? Um, so gerrymandering is something that we've long been concerned about. I would actually rank it quite high among the things that need to be fixed in this country mm -hmm. to protect our democracy. Um, I, another one I would throw out there would be the influence of special interests mm -hmm. in our in our system, mm -hmm. um, and of course, e equal treatment, as I mentioned. Um, I I we don't focus so much on the particular procedures because, of course, when you're looking at so many different countries and territories, they have so many different procedures, mm -hmm. and and we're not judging that you know the filibuster is okay here or not there. What we're most concerned about is is the effect, is the outcome. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you have a situation where um, that, you know, that we're maybe headed towards, but I wouldn't say we're quite there yet, where it's a minority ruling over a majority. I mean, it happens in many countries around the world, often on an ethnic line where there's a, a racial minority that has the power and a majority that doesn't. Um, those are definitely situations that... Um, that cause downgrades in our rankings. And here, the the polarization that has come up in this country and the impact of that, the way that it is exacerbated by gerrymandering, exacerbated by these voting um, restrictions, mm -hmm. is, is really our primary concern in that area of elections here. Uh, very quickly, uh, Sarah Rapucci, I've got uh, just another 30 seconds or so here, but uh, Democrats are now attempting anyway to move forward this massive elections reform bill, H.R. 1, the For the People Act. 
uh, with voting rights enhancements and protections, campaign finance reforms to uh, check dark money in our elections and gerrymandering at the federal level. Uh, reverse the uh, Supreme Court gutting the Voting Rights Act, uh, ethics reforms for all three branches of government. I'm wondering what your recommendations might be to the United States to try to reverse the uh, seeming backslide that we have been on and if something like H.R. 1 uh, would, would, would fit that bill. I think there's elements of H.R. 1 that would fit the bill. But what I would say more specifically is that, you know, that we need uh, independent, nonpartisan redistricting uh, to stop gerrymandering. We need um, re- restrictions on campaign finance so that special interests don't have so much of an influence. Mm-hmm. And we need to expand voting rights, um, especially in minority communities, so that um, so that all people can exercise their right to vote. And actually, H.R. 1 does do uh, quite a bit of all of the above. Um, but boy, that's going to be a Knockdown, drag out fight, uh, particularly if there is no reform to the filibuster. I don't know how it ever gets moved. Uh, Sarah Rapucci, really appreciate uh, you joining us today. Appreciate your report. We will link to it over at Freedom House. It is called Freedom in the World 2021 Democracy Under Siege at freedomhouse.org. You can also follow them on the Twitters at Freedom House. And you can find uh, follow Sarah Rapucci on the Twitters as well. She is Sarah Rapucci. R-E-P-U-C-C-I. She is Vice President of Research and Analysis at Freedom House. Sarah, really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much, Brad. You bet. Thank you. All right, quick break, and we are back with uh, something-something. We'll see what we have some time for. I've got three different directions I could go. All of it somehow freedom and democracy-related. Go figure. That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Back, it's the Bradcast. I am Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. All right, I sort of, I sort of promised uh, something about freedom and democracy, uh, but I'm, I'm going to change course here, Des, because I think this is okay. important news. I, I know that a lot of people are talking about it today, but I think it's important that people hear which way we are going when it comes to freedom that we all may soon win back. If we can all just get vaccinated, wouldn't (laughs) that be nice? Uh, And to get a taste of that niceness, uh, according to a long-awaited directive released today by the Centers for Disease Control, fully vaccinated Americans uh, can gather with other vaccinated people indoors without wearing a mask or social distancing, according to this much-anticipated guidance out today from federal health officials. 
The um, the recommendations also say that vaccinated people can come together in the same way with people considered at low risk for se- uh, severe disease, such as in the case of vaccinated grandparents visiting healthy children and grandchildren who may not yet have been vaccinated. The guidance is designed to address a growing demand as more adults have been vaccinated, though we are barely reaching 10 percent fully vaccinated still at this point. Uh, But many are wondering if uh, being vaccinated gives them greater freedom to visit family members and travel or do other things that they, you know, did before the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, And the answer according to uh, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, is, I think, an unqualified yes. With today's initial guidance, it's important to note that we are focusing on activities of fully vaccinated people can resume in private settings, such as their homes, under two scenarios. The first scenario is fully vaccinated people visiting with other fully vaccinated people. CDC recommends that fully vaccinated people can visit with other fully vaccinated people in small gatherings indoors without wearing masks or physical distancing. Remember here we are talking about private settings where everyone is vaccinated. Now I want to talk to you about another more complicated scenario. It involves vaccinated people visiting with unvaccinated people. When fully vaccinated people visit with unvaccinated people, we have to consider the underlying risks of the unvaccinated people and any unvaccinated members of their household. So CDC recommends that fully vaccinated people can visit with unvaccinated people from one other household indoors without wearing masks or physical distancing, as long as the unvaccinated people and any unvaccinated members of their household are not at high risk for severe COVID-19 disease. This means that none of the unvaccinated people or any unvaccinated members of their households, for example, are an adult over age 65 or have an underlying condition such as cancer, heart disease, or diabetes that could increase their risk of COVID-19 related hospitalization or death. If an unvaccinated individual or any unvaccinated member of their household are at high risk for severe disease, everyone, regardless of vaccination status, should still wear a mask and physically distance and choose to meet outdoors or in a well-ventilated space. This is recommended to keep the individuals at high risk who are unvaccinated safe. So got that. That was Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the uh, new head of the CDC. If you're fully vaccinated, meaning you've had both shots of the Moderna or Pfizer or the first shot of Johnson & Johnson and have waited two weeks since that final shot, uh, you are considered to be fully vaccinated and you can hang out without masks indoors with other people who are also fully vaccinated. Vaccinated two weeks beyond their fully vaccinated point. Well, remember, that's this well, they're is not all of them for two people who are two weeks after their vaccination. Right. Well, they're not considered to be fully vaccinated Correct. until Just two weeks make that after. Clear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know we're taking baby steps here, but it also means that yes, uh, elderly uh, people who have been vaccinated, if they want to visit a healthy grandchild without a mask, 
as I understood this, I think they can. Yes, as long as there's no one in that household of that child that's healthy, Mm -hmm. as long as no one else in that household is in a high-risk group because the child could pass it on to that person. So, uh, you know, she was saying that you can have these visits indoors, but it still sounds like, in general, the most safest way to interact with people who have been unvaccinated remains wearing your masks, staying socially distanced, and going and visiting outdoors. Have you been vaccinated yet? Does I have in? not. Remember, we're in California where they haven't dropped the, there aren't enough vaccines to go around yet. So I am not yet in the group that is allowed to get vaccine, vaccines yet. So you're you're claiming here, for the record, you are not 65 or older. Is <laughs> that what you're? Apparently I am. Okay. Yeah. Or right. in a high risk. Well, I guess, I don't know. I guess I'm high not risk? saying I'm in a high risk group. I don't know how that would actually factor. I don't know. You don't look well. I'm just saying. I Thanks just wanna, a lot. I, well, you know, it's the radio, so nobody's going to know one way or another. So I'm just noting that. Uh, okay. Uh, very good. So I, I think there's some good news uh, there. The CDC is continuing to recommend that fully vaccinated people continue to wear well-fitting masks and avoid large gatherings and physically distance themselves from others when out in public. So right now we're talking about small gatherings in homes. Uh, the CDC also advised vaccinated people to get tested, even if they've been vaccinated and if they develop symptoms that could be related to COVID-19. So far, about 30 million Americans or just about 9 percent of the U.S. population have been fully vaccinated with a federally authorized COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, But uh, since January, a uh, small but growing number of Americans have become fully vaccinated and they have been having these questions like, do I still have to wear a mask? Can I go to a bar now? Can I see my grandchildren? And we're beginning to answer those questions finally. And just to be absolutely clear, uh, Dr. Walensky, the CDC director, also said that the CDC is not changing any of their recommendations on travel. So that was one of the questions they received in their teleconference today, which was, what about a parent, a grandparent who's been vaccinated who wishes to fly to a state to visit their healthy grandchild? And they said no. They were still not changing those Well, they can fly, but they still have right. to follow the restrictions. They said where locally, all the locally you can visit following those dist- those yeah. restrictions. Very good. All right. Just we to be clear about that. Got it. We got to get out here. Uh, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyne, to my guest today, Sarah Rapucci of FreedomHouse.org, to my uh, board operator, Federico Garcia. Good to see you, Federico. And uh, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, Download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can share it with your friends, your family, your neighbors, as long as you do so carefully while wearing two masks. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here, hopefully tomorrow. Uh, until then, stay safe. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.